Thank you, Bhante. I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. Okay. So, eight months or so of quarantine. There have been riots and fires and crazy politics and all sorts of weird stuff going on. And now here we are on a Sunday. And who's this guy? Looks like Tom Hanks from Castaway, only better fed. Well, we're just going to do our best today. So, uh, welcome. Uh, thank you for this opportunity to speak. Uh, so today's talk is for everyone, but it's especially for those who have had it rough these last few months. A lot of feelings, a lot of concerns, a lot of anxieties. But it's also for the people who've been telling everyone, including themselves, that they're just fine. It's just been business as usual, no problems. You ask them how they're doing, great. They've picked up a lot of new hobbies and habits, learning how to make sourdough bread, the whole thing. And the thing is, this has been going on for a while now, so we've moved past the uh, watching of Tiger King and learning how to make sourdough bread and all the hobbies and all the distractions, and it just keeps marching on, doesn't it? Because I think we all started out pretty optimistic, everyone was willing to work together, and now it seems like less people are working together, less people are getting along. Some of us who have been adhering to guidelines for a long time, feeling a little stir-crazy. Meanwhile, we're watching people go get eggs benedict and mimosas with their friends, like life's going on like usual, and we don't know what, how to make sense of it all. So, in the midst of all of that, all this craziness of, the, of these last few months, I thought I'd give a talk on integrity. Now, integrity isn't a word you hear a lot in Buddhism. There are much more popular words that sound much more esoteric and mystical and mysterious, like mindfulness and loving-kindness and concentration. But I do think that a lot of what we talk about in terms of Buddhism can be understood in regard to integrity. Now, we're probably familiar with uh, the most common definition of integrity, which is the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles, moral uprightness. And I'll talk about that too. But there's also this other sense that perhaps is more immediate for us right now on the inside, which is the state of being whole and undivided. So I'm going to try to talk about both of those. We'll, we'll see how I do. But in the first sense, of integrity, I think we all know what that means, especially as Buddhists who might be trying to follow precepts, thinking of their life in terms of skillfulness and unskillfulness. And we can begin to do those things a bit reflexively. So long as we're following the precepts, so long as we find time to meditate, yeah, good, we're doing those things. But integrity has a lot to do also with honesty, and not just in, in terms of communication with others, in terms of skillful speech, it's there. But the honesty I have in mind is, is the kind of talk 
we have internally with ourselves, the honesty we bring to our immediate moment, the honesty we bring to ourselves in terms of how we're doing cognitively, emotionally. And, uh, you know, this is probably uh, the worst time in history for social media to exist. Because all we have at our fingertips is a, is a stream of news that is just doom scrolling. We just scroll through it all and take it all in and things seem to be bad. But then we look at all these social media influencers and apparently this is the best time because now there's time to work on those six-pack abs you've always been work, working on, right? Now's the time to try the new diet. Now's the time to try the new workout. Now's the time to do a bunch of stuff and be busy and busy and busy and busy. And I don't know. I, I have an approach to this time thinking this was a time to be busy. I had another kind of busyness in mind, which has its own faults, maybe. The kind of busyness of a Buddhist. Man, what a great time to practice. I'm going to meditate a bunch. I'm going to study a whole lot. I'm just going to dedicate myself to the Dharma even more. And some of you also might have thought of doing those things. And then you end up being surprised by how much of that time ends up being more like Netflix, YouTube videos, pizza, you know? Just like knee-deep in nachos, man, you know? And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's human. That's, that's a response to uh, a new term I came across. I hadn't heard it before, but ambiguous loss. And that's, that's exactly right, because... Many of us are, are grieving the lives we used to have. We're grieving the lives we thought we'd have. We're grieving what could have been, what would have been, so on. For me, I thought I was going to go on a bunch of cool retreats, spend the summer visiting different monasteries, all sorts of fun activities I had in mind. And then once all of that was taken away, I was very, very optimistic. I thought, oh, so much time to practice, so much time to study. And I did some of that, but I also did what a lot of other people are doing too, which is grieving. So a part of that honesty that we bring to the Buddhist practice is being okay with grief. We have a tendency to think that we have to uh, put on a strong face, that we have to sort of fake it until we make it in terms of equanimity, in terms of, of being balanced and having an equipoised mind. As if we're not supposed to be affected by things or not feel things. But a lot of that equanimity comes from facing things head on and having enough honesty to look in the shadows and dark places of our minds. That's how you get to the equanimity. Because if you read the Pali Canon, you go to the oldest teachings of the Buddha, you find that equanimity looks more like, like patience. It looks more like perseverance. It looks more like understanding what's within our control and what is outside of our control. And I also find similar teachings like that within Stoicism. You know, uh, some of you already know that I have a background in Western philosophy as well. And so I've always been drawn to the Stoics and, and Neoplatonists and philosophers like that, that uh, really hammer in the point that our lives work best when we understand what's within our scope of control and what's outside our scope of control. And this lab set we're given with to experiment on is this body, this very mind, that oftentimes that's the scope of our control, what we can work with, what we can work on, what things we can cultivate are usually within ourselves.
And, uh, you know, that sounds like a kind of busyness, and it can be. Some people approach it that way. They approach it in terms of, of activities, you know, a lot of chanting, a lot of meditating, a lot of other things they do, various forms of giving. And all of that is good. All of that is useful. But how many of us have actually looked inside and taken an honest assessment of how we're feeling right now, how we're doing? Sometimes some of us study Buddhism very thoroughly. I'm one of those guys, man. I'm a huge nerd. I read all the stuff. I study all the passages, fill my head with a lot of concepts. And now studying Buddhism at the graduate level, even more so, right? And all this study has shown me that the best way to benefit from Buddhism is not in studying, but in practicing. And that we study for the benefit of the practice. I remember one time, one of my teachers was asked a, a question by someone who was an aspiring monk. He wanted to ordain. And he says, you know, I'm going to be ordaining pretty soon. And I've been wondering, uh, how much of my day should I spend studying the suttas? And how much of my time should I spend in actual practice, you know, meditating and, and you know, walking around and, you know, all this stuff, actually putting stuff into practice? And I had a feeling that this aspiring monk thought that the answer from the teacher would be, yeah, you know, spend half your day studying all, reading all the books, reading all the suttas, reading all the passages, the commentaries, and then like, you know, maybe 40 minutes meditation in the evenings or something. And the advice was actually the exact opposite. The advice was, hey, maybe read like a page a day and spend the rest of the day in practice. And that's quite startling if you're new to Buddhism and you got all the books, you bought them on Amazon, you got all the Nikayas, you got all the teachers, Western and Eastern alike, and you got bookmarks ready to go and you're ready to delve in. And my advice to anyone new to Buddhism would be study just enough to practice and then practice. And then as you need more, as your practice deepens, study a bit more. Read a bit more. Talk to teachers, listen to their advice, but then always come back to the practice. And so that is one good thing that has come from this crazy situation, is that we have more grist for the mill, as they say. We got more stuff to work with. But even that is kind of an illusion, because in truth, any time of our lives is good for practice. Even our happiest moments. Because we have to keep in mind that in Buddhist cosmology, the, the, all the people in the heaven realms, all the gods and holy spirits that are in that system are in as much need of the Dharma as any demon or hungry ghost or anyone suffering in hell realms. And even if you don't believe in that part of Buddhism, there's still this notion that the Dharma is good for you all the time. Not just when you're sad, not just when you're lonely, not just when you're hurting. Because what we call the three poisons in Buddhism exist all the time. Or rather, sorry, the three marks of existence. Three, po three poisons or something else, but they're there all the time too. Uh, the three marks of existence are there all the time. And, you know, the thing is, people learn the three marks of existence, and uh, they have a tendency to approach it a very philosophical way. And trust me, I'm sympathetic to that. I'm a lot like that too. So we have a tendency to look at impermanence and suffering and not self 
as philosophical things to understand or mystical things to experience or have deep penetrating insight into. Now, I'm not one of those guys that completely wipes the slate clean and says that Buddhism is completely secular and there's no room for mysticism in there. I'm actually one of those guys that still holds to a soteriological view of Buddhism. That's just a fancy way of saying that I think that Buddhism ultimately leads, ultimately leads to salvation. I actually think that Nibbana is a real thing. But I think that the road to Nibbana is much more practical than people have been led to believe. Because they do approach the three marks of existence as very philosophical. But the thing is, it's in the practice that we look into impermanence and suffering or stress and not self. Then in a lot of ways, there are value judgments we place on the things we think will lead to happiness, that we think will lead to our benefit. Not just things to kind of understand on an intellectual level. Because how do we combat craving and clinging by intellectualizing? You know, you have a friend with a drinking problem. Like, hey, Mark, you know, that beer you're drinking has no substantial self. It has no permanence. He goes, well, I mean, I kind of I knew it's, it's a Bud Light. I knew it was locale, so, you know, I can see no, no substance there. No, we don't, we don't combat craving and clinging by thinking about impermanence. Rather, a more radical way of looking at an impermanence is realizing that the very things in this world, including ourselves and our mind, are inconstant, right? Rather than impermanent, inconstant. And so what that means is they're unreliable forms of happiness in the long term. That doesn't mean they won't make us happy. Man, I've never had a pizza that let me down, you know? But it's inconstant. It's unreliable. It's not going to make me happy forever. And all those things that we think make, make us happy, all those things that we, we feed ourselves with, and it's not just food, it's just an easy, easy thing to look at, but all the various things that we feed and, and try to find nourishment from are things that are inconstant in this realm of samsara, right? They're things that will not be reliable all the time. Not our health, not our beauty, not our minds, not even the tools of Buddhism itself. All these tools that we have in our toolbox are technically conditioned things, fabrications, sankhadas. So even the tools, the ladder with which we're climbing up, like, are ultimately unreliable. They're just, they just need to be reliable enough to get us over to the other side. right? Because no raft stays afloat forever. It's just got to be afloat long enough to get us to the other side. That's the idea. So, inconstancy in terms of its reliableness means that all of these inconstant things are stressful. Stressful in that they're not always going to be good. Stressful in ways they're not always going to be perfect. Stressful in ways that we can't trust. If you can't trust something, it's not reliable, you can't count on it for your happiness. It's stressful. And then that takes us to the third value judgment. In terms of inconstancy and stress, we find that things are not worth putting selfhood into, claiming as our own. So not self, rather than being a very mystical conception of like emptiness, you know, people view it that way. And there's a lot of literature uh, that agrees with that viewpoint, especially from Nagarjuna forward. 
But what I have found in the Pali Canon, in the very early teachings, is that the way the Buddha often talks about not-self is also in terms of just looking at the things we usually value, the things we cling onto, the things we crave, the things we own as me or mine. And there are often things in the world that aren't really worth that, not worth claiming, especially our philosophies, our ideologies, our views and thoughts about ourselves. They're usually not worth carrying on and owning as this is me. So in view of that, with that kind of honesty, we can look at ourselves and look at our thoughts and our actions in terms of skillfulness, but not in any kind of heavy-handed way. Remember that, that that other definition I read of integrity is the state of being whole and undivided. A teacher of mine talks about the mind as a committee, that we don't have a single mind with a single will or thought or direction. We really, instead, we have a, a committee of idiots up here thinking they all know what's best for us. And they're all just chatting away, trying to make us do one thing or another, pulling us this way, pulling us that way, pulling us left, right, doesn't matter. And the ones that often win out are the ones that lead towards some kind of immediate gratification. Something that eases our suffering just enough for right now. So integrity ends up being, in this case, looking at the mind and seeing what qualities are worth investing in, worth developing. And which voices in our head are worth listening to and strengthening, strengthening, giving them the microphone and moving away from immediate and instant gratification to something that's more long-term and more stable, a kind of happiness that maybe is less exciting, right? Because uh, Buddhism has Nibbana as the goal. It doesn't have Coachella as the goal, you know? So, like, it leads us down this path where the kind of stable happiness we have is something that is more likened to peace, right? And peace is so satisfying when, when you actually have these moments of peace. They often happen in meditation, but they don't always need to. That you have these moments of, of peace and, and rapture. Rapture usually starts first, and then it eases into peace. And then you have a stable place for the mind to rest. And finally, oh, take a breath. And how necessary is that right now? Because doesn't it feel like all of us collectively right now are holding our breath? We're just holding it in and waiting for a chance to like exhale when like it's okay? Because that's part of that ambiguous loss a lot of us are facing right now. There's no real sense of like when it's okay to just be okay. And meditation gives us a place to rest. It gives us a place to rest and then from that resting point, look and survey the landscape. The landscape of our mind and look at what's worth working with, what's worth encouraging, what's worth nurturing. Because, uh, you know, I've said it before that Buddhism is a lot like being a gardener. You got you to gotta work on the land, you got to till all that soil, you got to pull out the weeds, and you got to plant seeds that are worth planting. So you got something to harvest later on that's worth harvesting, right? A bunch of dandelions aren't going to help you so much. You need some, like, butternut squash or something, you know? And so... That's, that's what we're doing. Those tools we have, we develop them. And those voices we have that encourage us to be truthful, to be kind, to be compassionate, to be wise, 
Those are the ones we work with. And we're all familiar with all this stuff, which is why I'm not using a Buddhist term right now. I'm using the word integrity instead, because we've all grown up hearing that word, integrity. And we often imagine someone with moral fiber, someone who really stands their ground and does what's right. And yeah, that's kind of the right attitude in terms of, of our practice. You know, whether you're a Buddhist or not, whether you're someone who contemplates, meditates, it's still the same idea that you find out what you what you value, you find out what's worth pursuing, and then you pursue it. And speaking of Stoic philosophy, it reminds me of Marcus Aurelius, who says, stop debating or contemplating or arguing about what a good man is, be one. And that's true of anyone on the Buddhist path, that we can really ruminate in a lot of ideas and concepts and wonder how it is that we become someone with goodwill and someone with compassion and someone with sympathetic joy and equanimity. Well, the how is by doing. Practice makes perfect. These are skills we're developing, skills that we're working on. And that's how it's done. So this is absolutely a good time to practice. But any time would have been good. Even if all this stuff wasn't happening the way it's happening now, we'd still have the ability to introspect, to look inside, and to really make these value judgments about what is reliable, what is actually true happiness, and how we go about making that ha happiness happen. Because, you know, the thing is, we learn about stuff like, like not-self and emptiness and things like that, and we think that we have to apply those concepts immediately. That craving and clinging are given up by just like kind of cold turkey. I don't crave anything. I don't want anything. I'm good just as is. And man, that's a bunch of horse dookie. It's not real, right? That's called spiritual bypassing. That's convincing yourself you have achieved something before you've actually achieved it. So that means that for a lot of us, there's going to be a whole lot of craving and clinging and a whole lot of like unwholesome mind states all the way up to the end. In fact, one of the last things to go for someone who becomes an Arahant is like conceit, which is like a measure of like how much better you are than other people on the path. Like, wow, I'm like super good at this meditation stuff. I like really achieved some things and really point like, you know, that's that's one of the last things to go for someone who's really developed on the path. Go figure. But yeah, it's true. So we have a lot of craving and clinging, and what do we do? Do we give it up cold turkey? No. We train our minds to crave after things that are worth craving. And so this was actually a discussion I had with my wife probably a couple months ago, where she says, okay, well, if Buddhists are supposed to give up all this stuff, like, like what do they do for like fun? What do they do that, like, what are they supposed to cling to then? And I said, well, at first they cling to Buddhism itself and the practice and especially meditation. Meditation is a wholesome thing to crave initially, especially if you're meditating well. So I often take issue with the view of meditation as this thing you have to struggle and strive through, that it should be uncomfortable, it should be unpleasant, your mind should just be screaming at you the whole time. And uh, I don't take that view of meditation at all. I do see meditation as something that when cultivated the right way, gives you enough ease, enough pleasure, and enough peace that it's something that you want to return to again and again. It's like a well that you return to when you're thirsty. And it's from there you can survey the mind. It's from there that you, you can make better choices. 
Because if you're just spinning around like everyone else, you're not going to have that that clarity to make different choices. And certainly not clarity to know which voice in the committee of the mind is worth listening to. So that's how we do it. And it's not very exciting. Go figure. You know, it's not as exciting as watching, you know, Tiger King on Netflix. It's not as exciting as drinking or dancing or a lot of other things people like to do. It's not as exciting as brunch and getting some waffles and a mimosa or whatever. But it's much more stable. It's much more reliable. Because ultimately, we start off, well, I should say at first, we start off by taking refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha. But we work towards making ourselves a refuge. It's something that comes from the outside and we work it inward until we are that safe place for ourselves and others. In fact, one of the encouragements for following the precepts is that be, is you become safe for other people. But as you really start developing these qualities, these wholesome, skillful qualities in Buddhism, you become a safe place for yourself. And a much safer place to actually look at the shadowy parts of your mind. To look at the parts that scared you before. The parts that you denied about yourself. You gotta shine a light all the way around. And the Buddha even said this, that in meditation, you get to a certain point where you do have more clarity. And you have a luminosity that, didn't, that wasn't there before, that was obscured by things like defilements. By these tendencies that we have in the mind that obscure these kind of qualities. So we work on the mind, adding more light to it over time. Casting light on the shadows until all the shadows are gone. You know? And uh, that means that we look at how the last few months have gone for us. It means we apply honesty to it. Are we doing what we need to do? Are we doing what we want to do? And are we looking for something reliable? And the answer for some of us is probably like, you know what? No. I started out strong. I was doing all sorts of cool stuff. I was making my own sourdough and I was keeping busy. But I wasn't looking inward. And I also wasn't allowing myself to grieve. And that's a big thing. A lot of people right now not even wanting to admit that there's anything to grieve about. Not anything to admit that we've lost. Not to admit anything that we're afraid of. A lot of us are afraid to admit that we're afraid, especially if we're like spiritual people. It's hard to admit that we still have room to grow. But that's the point. Being honest means being accountable. And so we always have to be looking at how we can improve our minds. That's, that's the development. Not in a harsh way. There are people out there who are real taskmasters and they'll, they'll take the same advice and turn it into something really dark. Another way to chastise themselves and beat themselves up. Anything that you take from Buddhism, I would recommend holding lightly. Apply just enough. Apply just enough to help. Because in the end, you are your refuge. The Buddha said this himself, that you can get all the advice, you can get all the lessons, but the practice is your practice. The practice is what you do, what you think how you are in the world. No one can do that for you. So we're all in the business as Buddhists of becoming our own refuge. We build the raft 
to the other shore with our thoughts and our actions. So, I think that's a good place to stop. If there are questions, I would love to hear them. <laughs>